Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. All I have in this world is my balls and my word, and I don't break them for no one. Do you understand? Chapter 6. Fucking making straight up decisions now, dude. As my epic comeback nears its zenith, I can't help but look back at the low times when there was no hope or light. It's an old expression that has guided me through the dark valleys and hazy cul-de-sacs of life. Nut up or sack up. It means when life gets you all swirly and thought-ridden, shut it out. Let the two spherical sperm factories underneath your dick take over. They don't think. They don't get confused. They churn and attack. Not everyone can achieve their dreams in this world. That's because most people have things like feelings and sentimental attachments, nagging shit that keeps them from making the tough decisions that are necessary to get to the ultimate top. Unfortunately, the rocket ship of fame, there's only room for one. Any out of baggage will just weigh you down, holding you back from shooting for the fucking stars. Blast off, bitch. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tandler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, according to a recent study, you can either be a good father or have big balls, but not both. Which of those categories are you in? Uh, I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. Theory falsified. <laughs> it's one, of, <laughs> one of the one of the only theories in behavioral science that I've been able to falsify this easily. <laughs> Count this as a victory for Karl Popper. What we're referring to actually is a study. Well, it's described in Salon. You may be a terrible dad because you have enormous testicles. No, no, no. It's, it's better than that. <laughs> study colon. You may be a terrible dad because you have enormous testicles. <laughs> So the, the the name of the actual uh, paper in PNAS uh, that came out this in September, testicular volume is inversely correlated with nurturing related brain activity in human fathers. The important thing to to note first is that this is observational correlational. They didn't uh, they didn't jack up ball size and then measure how how it influenced parenthood they didn't influence parenthood and see whether it had an effect on on testicle size um and even even more importantly they didn't actually measure parenting they measured brain activity that is related to paternal caregiving Um, what yeah i didn't know that really yeah uh well i'm trying to look right now to see if they actually had any measure of 
It really is. Activity in parts of the brain related to caregiving was found. So they essentially showed fathers pictures of their own children and measured their brain activity. And fathers with smaller balls had like, you know, whatever the correlate of warm emotions for their own kids is. So, you know, this is just the, exactly the kind of study that is that is going to get a lot of, of action. But in reality, it's showing something very limited. But uh, what's the know, point of this study? So the I, I mean, like, first of all. I don't know my ball size, honestly. Like, yeah. I, 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 I have a good sense of, like, where I stand <laughs> penis-wise, but I have no idea where I stand ball-wise. Yeah. And now this is telling me that if I'm a good father, which I believe myself to be, and I think <laughs> I, I am, uh, is, like, that means that I have smaller balls and I have to feel like... I don't know. Yeah. Do you start so, treating your kids like shit and this, then your balls grow or how does it work? Yeah. That's that's probably exactly how it doesn't work. I, at least I hope. Um, <laughs> right. but, uh, but yeah, you know, this is – so this is one of those hypotheses that comes straight out of the, the um, sexual evolution. selection. Yeah, the, that part of evolutionary psychology is about sperm competition, sexual selection. The idea is that – that uh, because sperm are, are low in cost for men, we can we could just spread our seed, and and we can propagate our genes by not really having to do parental investment, but actually just by fucking lots of of women who will bear children. And uh, but there's another strategy that's also good for your genes, and that is to Marty sort of. Yeah, and that that yeah, that strategy is to to actually invest in the kids that you do have at the expense of spreading your seed. Both of these are, are viable strategies. And so the prediction is that men who choose the second strategy, that of high parental investment, may who knows what the causal direction is, but they would have lower they would be lower in testosterone and have a lower lower sperm or less less powerful testes to generate the amount of sperm that you would need had you chosen the first strategy. I see. Right. So, but uh, there's a you know this is this is something that I think needs to be pointed out, and and none of the press really is is pointing this out, which is <clears throat> so they measure testosterone level and testes size, and the assumption here is somehow these are causing good or bad parental strategies, or maybe that that the parental strategy that you choose is then going to affect you, um, but but there is plenty of evidence that. Uh, new new fathers have a reduction in their testosterone levels. So, so even though some people say, well, maybe, maybe it's because of this evolutionary theory, there's a very parsimonious reason why this might be the case. And that is uh, the amount of sleep that you get is related to how much testosterone you produce. And the more, the more involved you are in your child's life, as you and I know, the less sleep that you're going to get as a father. So that's actually a, a direct mechanism that could mean, it could explain the effect so you really are are a nurturing father which means that you you trade off getting up you know in the middle of the night with your with your wife and that actually because of a lack of sleep it means that you produce less testosterone yeah i mean i guess they would have to control for all those kinds of things like sleep how much sleep you get and you know you also wonder if this is because it it sounds like it's just toddlers that they're talking about just to read some of the headlines from this (laughs) I just Googled it. Yeah. So this is the most responsible one from Science Daily. Testes size correlates with men's involvement in toddler care. Okay, that's uh, LA Times. Men with smaller testes make better, better fathers. Great dads have smaller testicles, study suggests. That's from CBC. Aw, oh, nuts. <laughs> Nurturing dads have smaller <laughs> testicles. That, that might be the best one. Uh... uh <laughs> 
I mean, this is just oh, fire for him. Nurturing right. dads oh, have smaller testicles. <laughs> oh, my God. That is just so corny. <laughs> uh, that was NBC.com. Uh, well, for those of you who are interested, we'll we'll link to at least at least the original article so that we can be responsible. This might be the most res- irresponsible one. <laughs> Want to know if your partner will be a good dad? Measure his testicles. Oh my god! And again, I don't know how women like are women aware of like relative. Uh, <laughs> That's the thing. It's such a relative. Yeah, it's like how the hell do you get a good sense of of, of testicle size? Uh, but like, now, not- <laughs> so I guess the idea is all all of our female listeners, and I hope there are many of them out there. We um, before you get married, you know, make sure you measure their <laughs> testicles um, before you do. Compare it with whatever it's average. Uh, know exactly. Right. There, there should be little charts. You know, <laughs> that, that you can like you can like decent father, but will go away on a lot of business trips. Is this size? <laughs> It really kills me that they, they didn't even bother to me- measure actual behavior. There's just like a brain activity associated with – this is like the, the most roughshod measure of, of like actual uh, – you know, and maybe I'm being unfair to the researchers because I haven't actually read their measures. But you know, was there, were there other pictures that were controls, you know, like pictures of, of just any kids or was it the pictures of their right. own? You know? I could see this le- leading to a lot of fights, right? <laughs> You know, like a like maybe the I'm worst a great thing would father. be a woman I saying know, to her husband, your balls are "You've got these tiny ass testicles, and you're still a bad father." Oh <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm a great father. My balls are small. Science, <laughs> science, bitch. <laughs> and then you know, you could also have the guy being like, "Yeah, I'm sorry, I can't be there for the uh, right." I mean, look at for these. the recital. Look, look at these. I these. can't help it. <laughs> Oh, God. You know what would be hilarious is like because it's so hard to know uh, comparatively, like, you know, and and because of this above average effect. If a guy was like, I mean, check these out. They're huge. But but in reality, they're they're just I mean, uh, you know, like that's how I I feel. Like I have no idea like what the percentile within like 40 percent my balls are. You know what we need is like, you know, like we have measuring cups. Like we need essentially like a little circle cutouts where you can drop your balls like into just to see, you know, kind of like <laughs> like yeah, like small, how, big, how big, bigger, biggest. Yeah. And like, it should just be like they should be labeled like decent dad, good dad. You know, we'll wake up every night with them when they're young. Uh, those are for the really tiny little cups. I'm, a, I'm so ashamed sometimes to be in this field. <laughs> I mean, shame is the in only the testicle response. measuring field. <laughs> in whatever field you call, whatever. <laughs> All right, today's episode. <laughs> you know, should we take going a break? To be part two of the episode on moral psychology and relationship regulation. And uh, and I should say that I'm doing this podcast provisionally and against my better judgment on condition that you don't rhapsodize anymore about how handsome Sam Harris is. I mean, I think that my point was made, you know, we'll link to a picture. People can judge themselves for themselves. <laughs> I just really wonder what kind of a father he is. Yeah. That's a sort of indication of what you really want to know. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I didn't need to complete that joke. It wasn't. Important. Yeah, yeah. It's like thanks for stating because the chicken, right? Because you thought First I meant, you thought I was going to say something else about his motivation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a really bland explanation. You thought it was going to be something fun. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, let's let's take a break. 
As I come back, come back. As I come back, come back. My style is kind of fat, fat. My style is kind of fat, fat. Was so rough and that the brothers rolled the zack zack. The brothers rolled the zack zack. The brothers rolled the zack zack. As I come back, my style is kinda fat fat. My style is kinda fat fat. Fucking whack, fucking whack, fucking whack. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Today is going to be part two of our discussion on Rye and Fisk. First, a couple pieces of business. As always, you can tweet us at Peas, at, uh, at Tamler, at Very Bad Wizards. Um, you can like us on Facebook, rate us on iTunes. You can support us by clicking through on Amazon on our support page or by a direct donation. We've had a, we've had a few of those that we're very yeah. grateful for. Yeah, that's that's all the the promotion. Um, I do want to read an email that we got because I think it's actually relevant to this oh, episode. You, yeah, before you get to the email, really quickly, just to put it up front, uh, two things. Uh, we'll do our best to refer to uh, the authors in plural form because poor Rye um, was the <laughs> first, first, author, was the the first author. And as as someone who's experienced this, I used to call it the bloom effect where uh, all my, like my papers with Paul would just get either bloom or bloom at all or something. <laughs> and uh, second thing, I kept mis- mispronouncing Tej Rye. His first name is, is Tej, not Taj. And I, so when we did mention him. Yeah, when I actually mentioned him, I got it wrong. It's like just yeah, poor Tej just. Just kidding. All right, so uh, should we read this email? This is from Rich Heyman, who is actually a, he was a colleague of mine at the University of Minnesota Morris. He left after the first year and moved to Austin. I left a couple years later, moved to Houston. I've seen him a couple times since. So anyway, he he asks, and again, this is going to be relevant for us today. What is this thing? Quote intuition that you guys invoke all the time. What is the status of this concept in the fields of philosophy and psychology? Yeah, we're not going to be able to give a quick answer. Oh, right, right. This deserves an entire episode, maybe. Yeah. The word itself seems to imply something like innate. This innate connotation of the word seems to imply that intuition is some some kind of pre-consciousness that gives access to some fundamental universal level of human nature. But as it's often used, it seems to refer to an individual's thoughts or a kind of common sense, um, I guess like a gut reaction. So isn't it he- heavily shaped by cultural context and therefore not a universal that can u- be used to make statements about human psychology? All right. You just uh, give a quick answer to this question. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's such an important question. It's, it's yeah. sort of fundamental, and he's absolutely right that, that we use it a lot and that we haven't sort of analyzed it very well on the show, but that's that's, that's also true of the field, right? So we use intuition. So so at least in psychology, and I think there are real differences in, in the way psychologists use it and the way philosophers use it, but I'll say this. In psychology, it's an inflated term, so so it actually means a lot of different things, and sometimes people actually bother to say what, what they mean, and sometimes they don't. But uh, often uh, what people do is they lump all kinds of things into the category intuition, <clears throat> such as emotional reactions, uh, 
in some ways it's defined almost as that is those kinds of quick thoughts that don't require deliberation. So intuition is often defined simply in contrast to deliberation. And then sometimes people mean innate, as as the email suggests, and sometimes people mean learned through experience. So a chess player has intuitions about what the next move should be. No one claims that those intuitions are innate. They're just a result of expertise. I think what happens in psychology is that we, because we lump together a whole bunch of things under the, under the label intuition, that it's often just a slippery claim. Um, and then you can chime in on this. I think philosophers tend to use it in a, a slightly different way, which, which doesn't preclude reflection or deliberation. So it might be that it might be a gut reaction, but I think philosophers right, think that you can have refined intuitions. Well, okay. Here's the what I would think is the new norm, or maybe the best norm, right? Um, there's intuition, as as you say, a sort of gut reaction that you have, uh, a reaction that doesn't have some sort of other justification it can't be drawn as an inference right and that's like intuition and you know the classic times that you would use that is just intuitions about cases right should you push the fat man off the bridge when intuition is used that way like intuitively we feel or sometimes people just say we think or we seem to feel or we seem to think or we seem to judge you know that's a shorthand for our just sort of brute intuition on that question is other times Right. They do mean a more reflective or what John Rawls calls a considered intuition. And a considered intuition can often be one that you do reflect upon and you might examine. It would help a lot if people just just said considered intuition when they mean one that, you know, comes after a good amount of deliberation and can be revised based on, you know, how well it coheres with other intuitions you have versus, you know, essentially the the, the, the judgment after reflective equilibrium right. versus that kind of first starting point core intuition um, that, you know, that would be helpful to clear up a lot of ambiguity in, in, in philosophy. And, uh, in any yeah. case, I, I do think his point that this is you know, uh, shaped by cultural context and all sorts of different contexts is totally correct. Whether whatever kind of intuition we're talking about. This was the big point of my book. But I don't know that this is true for whatever kind of intuition. So I just mean for, I guess for, for moral intuitions, for most moral intuitions, whether they're considered or, or brute. Yeah, it, it, that may be the case, right? Yeah. So, so, and and even the claim that an intuition is innate does not d- does not in any way deny the the influence of culture on top of those intuitions. Jo- John Haidt, and and I suggest you read John Haidt's sort of description of what he means by intuition. But what he often means is that is this sort of real basic layer of of core what tamler is calling core these core or brute intuitions that are then valued differently by by different cultures and and so there's this there's you know culture has to build on something and sometimes it's these core things and so he means them in this sort of blend of of evolutionarily selected for innate intuitions that then get cultures to turn them on then get shaped by 
there's very few intuitions that you can say are innate and it just doesn't matter what your culture is. Maybe the closest thing that you might think would be mathematical intuitions or yeah, logical even, intuitions. Yeah. But and even those... Even those. Right? I mean, there's plenty of evidence, I think, that there's there's a basic numerical set of intuitions. Um, but in preliterate cultures, it's super basic, right? It's, you know, it's... What, yeah. what is it? Zero, one, and many? Or one, two, and zero, one. Or what, yeah. No, it's actually one, two, and many, because zero isn't a concept that, that preliterate cultures usually have. So they're, they are simple. But yeah, I, I think that logical intuitions, like like the principles of you know identity, like two equals two, or something like that, those are so fundamentally core that it's hard to imagine if somebody disagreed with them that there's not just something wrong with their <laughs> with them. Like it's like... Yeah, but you know, like, did you read that Geography of Thought book by Nisbet? That might be a good one to talk about. Oh, yeah, uh, no, I haven't, actually. He has some interesting evidence that even some of these, you know, logical... And, you know, a lot of the fuzzy logic is sort of based on the cultural construct of certain sort of... A- what we would take to be basic, analytic, self-evident right. intuition. Although it's tricky, because then you just want to say they're wrong, right? I mean, they they... <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's but always yeah. tricky, right? Because then if you're, if you're going to allow that, if you're going to allow that about a logical intuition, why not allow that for, you know, a much more controversial moral intuition? Well, because, and this is, again, a whole other episode, but because logical intuitions let us do things like build spaceships and predict the motion of stars. And so I think that... that it, not to get into epistemology, but there are some yeah. intuitions that I have absolutely no problem saying like, oh, they just don't. They, they, there's, something, there's something about them that they haven't realized. Like fundamentally, they haven't realized this intuition. It's not that they – I think that they could be easily convinced in a way that people can't be easily convinced that you should kill your daughter for if she got raped or whatever. Yeah, but, I mean, all right. Fair enough. We'll, we'll, we'll quick, re- it would one, depend on the nature of the disagreement. Also. Yeah, exactly. Really and and we'll get to the to moral disagreement in this episode, hopefully. But one quick thing that I want to point out about, about the philosopher's use of intuition. I think that your distinction is a good one between these core brute intuitions and the more reflective intuitions. But it is tough because philosophers, you know, you're, you're saying philosophers should be clear about this, uh, about which one they mean. But I think it's often the case uh, that a philosopher who builds their arguments on these basic core gut intuitions then turns and says when when for instance experimental philosophers say look this isn't everyone's intuition then those philosophers say things like look my claim isn't that everybody's going to have these intuitions mine mine are a result of actually thinking about these things and And being an expert yeah and it might be disingenuous i think they would at least ultimately agree that their intuitions, like that chess player, this is how they right. think of themselves anyway, happen to be more accurate in whatever domain they're discussing. And, you know, where this becomes infuriating, you know, just developing a moral theory based on your intuitions doesn't make you an expert in moral intuitions. <laughs> it just doesn't. All right. right? Well, but this is a totally yeah, different let's topic. Let's launch because that's really relevant to the discussion. So let's We're going to have an episode on this. Yeah. All right. Uh, second thing, this is his criticism or one of them, films. <laughs> I enjoy references to films because unlike Dave, I get most of them. It's, I like the little pot shot at you. Uh, yeah, I know. I, yeah. 
Fuck you. Uh, no, but actually, like, anytime I refer to a movie made before 19, like, or no, pre-Pulp Fiction, I guess. I mean, what can I say? I'm not douchey about movies. But I think sometimes they're sometimes used in a problematic way, our film references. You sometimes use them as evidence to back up your claims about moral responsibility. Quote, see how Matty Ross does X, Y, and Z, and that shows us something about the nature of revenge. Something like that. And I just don't think we can point to films in this way as evidence of anything relating to human psychology. Maddie is an invention of Charles Portis, not a psychological being. Although, be- Charles, by the way, Charles Portis, I take it as a human being, but a psychological being. Right. <laughs> and he, right. Charles Portis is also the, the novelist that wrote True Grit. It might be better to see films as supporting one or another argument about psychology or morality or whatever, but not as evidence. Okay. I do think that that's a good point in one sense, right? Which is, I do. you can't just assume that uh, a movie character is acting in a way that human beings would normally act. You can't just assume that. On the other hand, like a good novelist, like that's why they're a good novelist is because they, they portray that, human yeah, beings yeah. In, a, in a persuasive way and you buy that a person would act that way. But it's still, right, I mean, it can't be used as direct evidence, especially for a psychological <laughs> theory. Now, for a moral position, which is what I am often using film references for, I think it's 100% legitimate because we can know just as much about Maddie Ross's motivations as we can know about any mo- any, per- any real person's motivations. Right. And really what we're getting at there is how we respond to the way she acts and, and whether we approve it or not. Right. Right. And I know that I use Maddie Ross, the point being that I approve of her actions. I approve of her wanting to take revenge on the guy who killed her dad. And here's why uh, there are a lot of virtuous qualities that are expressed through the pursuit of this act of revenge. And I don't see any problem with that. Right. So I'm going to say two things. One, you're being kind and not defending yourself enough because I don't think that you would ever claim to use these characters as evidence. Um, You know, the the whole point is to to illustrate. So whether you're saying Jones and Smith or whether you're saying Matty Ross, it's it's the point is to say uh, to say to add some level of an example that clarifies the thought that you're trying to convey and it's true that whatever thought you were trying to defend you could probably find a fictional character that would defend it if you wanted to argue that revenge is horrible and bad you could find some sort of cinematic or literary character to back this up but that's not the way that you're using if it wasn't clear that it's not considered evidence then then let's just clarify now i'm going to attack you because you do use literary and film references and and as do i in a way that is essentially saying like see isn't my claim doesn't my claim make sense because and then and then we refer to to a movie character or uh, it's always pulp fiction for me but it's lots of different douchey films for you i think that you're using films as intuition pumps in the very way that you're about to attack the use of intuition and in building normative theories if we get to this later on right so i, I think that this is a, a use of intuition by you first of all i guess the difference is i'm not I, i'm not trying to argue for any kind of objective moral theory no but it doesn't Uh, matter it doesn't have to be objective you're still making a theoretical claim even if it's a negative one and it's relying on intuition no no no. but i'm saying look even you agree with me about this 
because you would agree that Matty Moss was a virtuous character. That's if exactly you don't, that, then you don't. That's and exactly I, you know, what, I can't. But is that exactly what philosophers do when they bring up puzzle cases? If they're doing that, that's fine, if, and they're upfront about it. But all right, let's just launch into this with the <laughs> okay. Raj and Fisk. So we had this argument, right, where you said that you know using these trolley cases in moral philosophy and normative ethics is totally fine. But using, uh, but using them f- as a basis to try to describe a moral psychology is problematic because right. uh, they don't really give evidence about human psychology when conducted in this kind of asocial way. So the, dis- the discussion was about – I am in full agreement with Ryan Fisk about if you're building a psychological theory of morality and it's completely abstracted from things like human motivation and, and culture and, and social relationships, that you probably are not going to get at an accurate psychological description or psychological theory about morality. So I'm completely on board. And when we were discussing this, I, I made the, the remark that it's different because from a normative theory, an ethical theory that you're building, because I don't think that the burden is the same. That is, I think that you could construct an normative ethical theory that doesn't appeal that much to human psychology. And you said that you think that, in fact, it's the same. Sort of it, the has, is, yeah, it has. Yeah, it's just as illegitimate. I, d- I just disagree that it's just as illegitimate. I think. Well, can I explain yeah. why? Yeah, yeah. So here's the way you construct a moral theory. You say, okay, we have this intuition about this trolley case. You know, like look at Francis Cam. All these thought experiments, right? That you have to be thinking about in very detached, abstract way, outside of any relationship context, or at least because I, I suppose you could be using equality or market pricing. You could be using one of those frameworks, but it would be actually misleading, right? Your intuition in that case would be misleading because in real life, in real situations, you would be using a different, you would be adopting a different framework, okay? So she uses those intuitions as evidence for a theory that's then going to tell you what to do in various real life situations. She's a deontologist and and so let's say, you know, she comes up with all these intuitions, puts it into her reflective equilibrium machine and comes out with a theory, you know, like a a Rossian deontological theory, right? Now that's supposed to tell her how to and supposed to tell all of us because she's not a subjectivist, how to act and how to judge certain real-life situations. But now we might be thinking about these things in completely different terms because our intuitions are generated by different frameworks or we have different moral motivations. And so I actually think it's a lot better to use something that can at least get you into the framework. Like True Grit is a great example because my whole point in using that example is we know what it's like to have a father. Every one of us knows what it's like to have a parent. And, and we can maybe imagine how we would feel and what we would judge as right in that kind of context where our parent was killed in cold blood. Now, maybe we can't, but at least it's better than, um, you know, there's a trolley coming and you're at a switch. I, I mean, it's I just think the that, way they're drawn, but right? I think just, that- 
just the no. way those guys are drawn. Like, think of a Josh Green slide, right? Where, uh, which I use all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm guilty yeah. of this in my intro to ethics class, right? Like, yeah. those aren't real people. They're tinker toys. Right. I mean, that's, that's exactly why I did the Chip Tyrone trolley study to, to argue this point. But, but I was arguing a psychological point. Right, and, but and I, I think- I, it's just as relevant because even though it's used as data for something different, right? Not a psychological theory, but a normative theory. It's still used as data. Well, so he, here's here's what I'd like to say because in some ways I don't disagree that psychological data. It's my claim isn't that psychological data are irrelevant to a normative ethical theory, and I think that there's a we have a fundamental disagreement about this. But my my claim is that a normative ethical theory isn't incoherent if so that is you could have a coherent normative ethical theory that most people disagree with and in fact this is the you could have a coherent one but no i mean but no reason to think that it's true you could have a coherent i don't know why it would be true to say what you ought to do you have to describe what people actually do in fact in fact that's a really difficult way to build a normative ethical theory because because then and this is where i think that your meta-ethical position is coloring your position like what what you believe about psychological data the the problem with using with being really sensitive to psychological data when building your normative ethical theory is that it leaves you in a position where you cannot distinguish between uh conflicting moral accounts and it may very well be that your goal is to to just simply say what people ought to do and but Dave, Dave, how are you going to do that without appealing to intuitions? Explain. Well, no. Just so, give me like I, it's it's not even conceivable to me how you could defend a theory. So on the last one, you said utilitarianism might be a good example. Yeah, they so, reject a lot of intuitions. Right. So here here's exactly what I mean. I don't think that you can build theories, philosophical theories, normative ones or whatever, without appeal to intuition. But in this case, I think that what the consequentialist, specifically the utilitarian, does is they appeal to intuitions that don't have the same problems as as the intuitions that deontological theorists appeal to. So what you're doing is you're appealing to, say, a very basic mathematical intuition, and then this gives you the ability to reject a whole bunch of intuitions. So wait, I'm wait, not wait, saying... No, no, no. no, no. Let's be specific, right? Yeah. You say you're appealing to a mathematical intuition. Right. Five is more than one. Yeah. I and, will agree and with happiness that. And more happiness is better than less happiness. Right. So it's uh, a... But that's – hold on, right? Okay. It's an intuition. It's an intuition that more happiness is, is better than less happiness. Yeah. Right? I'll give you that, right? Yeah. So I'm not saying that you could build – I'm not saying that you build that intuition-free theory. That still doesn't get you utilitarianism, right? Ne- the thing that gets you utilitarianism that is always going to have to appeal to intuitions about cases is the impartiality principle, Right. Uh, why that somebody because this is an intuition that's not obvious like happiness is better than unhappiness right uh, yeah that a stranger's happiness is just as important as my uh, daughter's happiness right so right? a couple of things I'm I'm simply defending from from what you think I'm saying which is that you can build an intuition free normative account and that's not what I'm saying so you right. need intuitions at some level all I'm saying is that that uh, when you're building a theory, I don't see why the burden would be to accurately capture psychology. Like so, so we build because theories. You need some Let's, evidence that your theory is true. Yeah, so but evidence you, evidence for a normative theory is not descript. Like I, I thought this was a basic thing. Like you, 
what does psychological data get you about you can't poll people and decide murder is wrong right this isn't, isn't this like philosophy 101 that is right but the problem is you need some reason they say look you don't poll people and just say you know just because some people think 9-11 was right that doesn't make it right right yeah. uh that's all true as far as it goes but you still ultimately need some reason to believe that a theory is true right you and need, so is what you're saying is that and the so only- that has to be evidence of some kind so if you think it doesn't have to be psychological evidence then give me an alternative form of it well so so you know consistency i mean there are all kinds of sure, there, consistency there are, yeah, I but mean, there are all can kinds be, of, as you know, multiple consistent eth- ethical theories. Yeah, but that's not nearly as problematic as the richness of and disagreement of psychological intuitions. Here, let, let me just put it this way: it sounds, it sounds as if what you're saying is that the only reasons you could give to defend an ethical theory are psychological ones, and I don't no, know no, that no. that's the only reasons. Like, if it's not an objectivist theory, the only reasons you could well, give let's, why so uh, it could be an objectivist theory. I don't. Okay. Well, then I think everybody has to agree with the key intuitions that you are basing because I – otherwise, why would you – you know, the person gives an argument, right? This argument appeals to intuitions and then you draw your conclusion, the greatest happiness principle, okay? But if somebody doesn't share your intuition – uh, th- that a certain premise or a number of different premises is are, is true. Why on earth would they have any reason to buy the conclusion? I, I guess it, that that really this is co- at the core where where I think that the meta ethical position matters. So for an objectivist, I think it's no problem at all if ninety nine percent of people disagree with you because what you're doing is, and I think it, it helps to take a, a, an objectivist view that's not moral and see how obvious it is that people's opinions don't matter. So a, a moral objectivist met, a meta, in, in the meta-ethical sense, I think, simply has no problem saying it is – so uh, my theory is that you know, act utilitarianism is true and – I, in the same way that an objectivist the about general relativity is the general yeah, relativity right and so like people you know people don't people don't have intuitions that are consistent with relativity or, or quantum yeah, but theory but here's the difference like but here's the difference I would not believe that general relativity was true if it didn't make successful predictions that were then verified experimentally but, right but I but it does and so I do yeah but, I normative, have, but utilitarianism claim, doesn't do that but a normative it makes claim no does not. It, that's a mismatch. Like a normative claim does You're not require – You're using that analogy to support the view that you don't have to have people agreeing with you to be an objectivist because here are these other domains where you don't have to have people agreeing with you to be an objectivist, yeah, to legitimately but- be an objectivist. But in those – my point is in those other domains, the reason why you can be an objectivist is because there's some sort of independent way of resolving the disagreement. But you don't ex- have – Experiments you, and I empirical mean, this, evidence. You're right. This is problematic in the moral domain. But the, the, the point I think of a normative theory is, is that it's – so a normative theory does not entail that evidence, psychological evidence is required. Like it's not it a claim about that. it's not a descriptive claim. It, I'm not saying it's a descriptive claim. I'm saying we have some we have to have some reason to buy the the conclusion of the th- normative theory. It's we do. You're right. You're absolutely right. The but 
psychological data is neither here nor there for the it, normative. It's, I don't, it is. I, it, that's the claim we disagree with. That's a substantive claim. I'm saying not, that ultimately some form of psychological da- data is going to be necessary in order to resolve a particular disagreement I, or to give I, any I think reason to so- think that this person is right and this person is wrong if they have fundamentally different intuitions about a key premise in that argument. Well, right? let's just say – let's take That's consistency. Kind of an obvious point. Uh, it's not obvious because I think most people d- would disagree with the fact that no- a normative theory would require descriptive evidence because I, I don't I just don't see how it feeds into normative theory if most if you, people disagree. Then, then, then those people, including you, have to provide this other kind of evidence. Yes, that's exactly. Not that's which my is point. What? But which I don't. Is what? But but I don't have to have an answer for what kind of reasons build a normative theory. In order to say that descriptive – it's like saying, look – Then here's what – I'm going to be an objectivist about taste of blueberries, and I'm going to say that you know anybody who finds blueberries to be not objectively delicious, they're just simply wrong. They're just making a mistake, and I don't have to do anything more than just insist that, that, that I have a theory of taste no, that's the that concludes that blueberries are objectively you delicious. You do need something more. It's just that just because I'm say, just because you need good reasons to back up a normative theory, like I'm not, I don't understand the, the but, difficulty but in our you're having debate, with this, which like, is a meta level un- above that. I am saying that ultimately. It will boil down to agreement about intuitions at some level. So, okay, let's just start with the fact that there is widespread disagreement about intuitions. You're the only possible normative theory or meta-ethical theory that you could arrive at is that there is no moral truth. No, that's not true. Here's how you could arrive at a different meta-ethical theory. If you could show, you could be an objectivist. I think you could be an objectivist, and, and, and here's what it would ride on. I happen to think that reflective equilibrium or wide reflective equilibrium that incorporates you know, empirical facts – and various other theories that are relevant to the moral issue or theory that's under discussion, right? Mm -hmm. That that's the only way that you can come up just for yourself with any kind of ethical theory, right? Everyone's just doing wide reflective equilibrium, whether they say they are or they're not, right? Now, let's just take that as uh, a given. If there are a certain group of principles... Right, a certain theory that everybody would come to using wide elect, uh, reflective equilibrium, or at least the vast majority of human beings would come to using wide reflective equilibrium, then I would be happy to, to be, for all intents and purposes, an objectivist about uh, meta-ethics. But if you, wide reflective equilibrium would bring reflective, thoughtful people to different points on a, on a moral judgment or a moral theory, well, then I don't think you can be a, an objectivist. But it I, does boil down to this, the empirical question of what wide reflective equilibrium will yield I, for people know, of radically different cultures, radically different cultural backgrounds. That, you know. It strikes me as super hand-wavy to say wide reflective equilibrium. Like, and then assume that people are doing that. I, I mean, so... On, what are they reading, doing if they're not doing that? Well, so so I, I suppose that it turns on what you mean by wide reflective equilibrium, but... but so they're many, taking a... You, you start I mean, out many with people have completely nothing, Everything's open for a revision, but you need as data, just for yourself, certain intuitions about cases, about general principles, greatest happiness principle, no, whatever. Well, most people don't think about that. 
Right. I mean, most people would never in that on that view would never. Right. So they don't so, try to examine them them every moral belief they have for consistency with other moral beliefs, and yeah. also they don't uh, make sure that everything is based on empirically sound information that's relevant. Yeah. So so most people don't do that psychologically speaking, right? They, I agree. This is not right. So that's why, in, like, just asking people for judgments isn't going to really tell you much. Well, it tells you that they don't do widespread reflective equilibrium, right? Which, but but I, I'm yeah. saying this is the only way you can construct a moral theory. That was my point. My point wasn't that everybody is constructing moral theories legitimately. I'm saying that this is the only way you could construct a moral theory. So, it's the only so conceivable then, way. Right. So then, then, then let's take the people who do some, do some form of widespread, like this reflective equilibrium that you're talking about. We know that there are people who meet those criteria, and they do disagree. Right. So your conclusion is, therefore, there is no objectivist account. Well, no, morality. because there's still the there's still uh, it's still possible that uh, one of them th- they've reached different conclusions because one of them's wrong about empirical information. Okay, could some of them be wrong about the non-empirical information? No, I don't see how. Like because <laughs> really okay. Well, right. you know I, what? We've, I, been, like, we've been going for like, 40, 40 You can't just insist I'm right and you're wrong. No, I'm not insisting. There's no way of resolving – but there's no way for me to demonstrate I'm that. Just I'm just curious about why why it all boils down to empirical information for, to make a normative claim. Like I don't – it's it's unclear to me what norm, what the descriptive because information is for the, yielding. For the, th- the reason I keep going back to which is you need some reason to convince somebody who disagrees with you that they're wrong and you're right. But or you, you need some reason to think that this person is wrong and I am right even though I can't okay. even conceive of a possible let me, way let to me, do that. Let me try this out on you then. Yeah. Uh, the, the process of reflective equilibrium that you just described requires some sort of not just empirical facts but also thinking about principles and such because uh, reflective yes. equilibrium yes. on on right. the account that you just gave yeah, is yeah. not just so okay. like so, all right you know all right okay this case seems intuitive but yeah. the general principle say uh, the right. impartiality principle right. also seems intuitive. that's the kind of thinking that i'm talking about right you so you accept that there is a category of let's call it reason i don't think evidence is the right word but there is a category of information that you arrive at that's non-empirical that feeds into the rightness or wrongness of a normative ethical theory is that is that's that? not that is empirical because how am I going to resolve no, no, no. The, co- I mean, princi- the conflict? No, listen. Think how about am the I principles? Ju- you're no. not even you're, you're, you're saying no before you're- I've even asked the question. <laughs> okay, I know what you're going to say. God damn it! All right, go ahead. No, you don't. Let's say let's take a real disagreement. I feel the pull of the impartiality principle mm-hmm. that everybody's happiness counts as the same. Okay, right. Now, but that's is that an empirical pull? What? I'm is just saying a- I feel the pull. It's an empirical okay. claim that I feel that. That that, uh, ha- that well. intuition has some force for me. <laughs> well, okay. That's empirical claim, right? No. Well, okay. Well, like, is it go, not? Go on. It's Somebody a weird way to use that it, claim it, about it, me. Because, because, if, because, because then there is nothing that's not an empirical claim about, you know, it's like one, pl- one plus one equals like, two you is, not a, say is an empirical People judge this or people judge that. Yeah. Um, and that's an empirical claim, yeah, right? Okay, fair, uh, go ahead. Continue. Okay. If you're not just giving me basic, obvious truths, there's no way I'm going to convince you. So, um, so now listen, right? Okay. So now I'm trying to come up, I'm trying to figure out a way to resolve. The fact that I feel the intuitive pull of the impartiality principle, but I also feel like if my daughter was sick, right, it would be wrong for me to 
not treat a treatable illness and have her die, even though the money I would have to spend could save, you know, 5,000 starving children in Africa, right? right? And here's where, so Peter Singer and I would, would come down on different sides, right? Mm-hmm. There's a question where I, I, even though I feel the pull of the impartiality principle, the pull of the family obligation trumps that uh, yeah. for me. It doesn't for him, right? Yeah. Those those are empirical facts just about uh, right. our I, form of reflective equilibrium. I get what you're saying, and I think that then the, just the only s- source of disagreement here is that um, everything that you described about the the conflict that you have between the, the principle of impartiality and the one of obligation to family, that's the kind of information that I'm saying is relevant that I would just wouldn't call empirical. I mean, so in one sense, if you poll tons of people, you would get data on what they believe. But I think that for you, or at least for me, that whether or not obligation beats impartiality is not an empirical, it's not, it's not really sensitive to data. It's just what I believe. I think it's gotta be because, well, what sort of data would convince you that your daughter doesn't deserve the treatment? Here's what would make me question it, right? Like any sort of ethical judgment that I'm making or any sort of aesthetic judgment that I'm making, right? Mm -hmm. Like, for example, I see a movie and I think it sucks. Quiet, Omar. And then... Fucking mailman. Is that not empirical? That my dog, what an asshole to deliver your mail. My dogs bark at the mailman. <laughs> yeah. uh, so let me use the aesthetics analogy, which I think is actually fairly close, right? So let's say that somebody was, you know, I saw this movie, I judged that it was a piece of shit, but then a lot of people, including people I respect, they're, you know, it's not like you, they've actually seen uh, a lot of movies, they understand movies, they understand cinema history and so forth. They say, no, 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 this movie was really good i would start to question my judgment on that and so if the way if if there was a moral opinion i had now it still might not convince me i still might be stubborn and say i you know i'm just not going along with everybody here but that would have serious rhetorical weight if there was some key issue that i seem to disagree about even after we've cleared up like all these other different kinds of possible you know, ways in, that the disagreement can be explained. And we can't find any way of explaining the disagreement, right? Other than it's just this core brute difference in, in our intuitions about what's right. Well, then, I, I, you know, Doc, I'll, I'll at least want to question my intuitions more than if I think it's just like eggplant and some people happen to like it and some people happen not to. I, I, yeah, except for that, I just think it boils down to what you're calling empirical information is to me, I, I think that the reason reason that you would accept the judgment of others about the movie isn't that it's provided you with some matching with you know the real world it's simply that you respect their ability to arrive at at the the proper evaluation and that's why you weight the evidence you would say like well joe is is a, a cinemaphile and i know that he knows between good movies right and so that's I don't think that's empirical data in the way that we're we're talking about to build a normative theory. Like if what you're saying is like I want to know what 
philosophers I respect believe. What you're really saying is I champion their ability to to think logically and analyze these things, and that's why I endorse them. Not because, but not because I'm not for empirical like, I'm, data un, I'm underconfident about my own ability. No, no, no. But it's not. But it's not. It's also not. It's just the weight of acquiring. so many people disagree because with. because the process that they what fundamentally is what is it in them that you that you respect? And I think that what it is 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 it's not really empirical. It's that they can think clearly about these things, and so. But also that they have the right information, and also that uh, you know they, they, you know, in this sense, expertise really does matter. It does, but let me use an analogy for why I think that this isn't empirical in the sense that we're talking, right? So I might say, like, I have symptom X, right? Uh, I have a rash, and I could ask a bunch of doctors what they think I have. And in that sense, it's empirical data that would that would convince me. But it's not really. I know that they've arrived at it's they've arrived at the 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 um, diagnosis because they they have like they've read volumes of medical literature. Not because but there I'm there's a huge them. imbalance in terms of your right. knowledge but, and their knowledge. So you're just going to trust them. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's an appeal to expertise, and I think that what that the reason that you appeal to certain experts about cinema is because what you don't no, but they're I, wonder peer, they're, I would call them epistemic peers, not experts in a way that I'm not an expert. Epistemic peers. Are you next going to tell me the difference between implication and implicature? <laughs> we should take a break. <laughs> yeah, we should definitely take a break. I need to get some water. I'm all worked up now. <laughs> We haven't even talked about the paper at all. I know we haven't. This is all right, we'll terrible. be right back. Six in the morning, police at my door. Six in the Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, it turns out, I guess, although this whole argument was prompted by something that came out of Ryan Fisk, we didn't actually talk about very specific implications of Ryan Fisk. Let me uh, let me connect it back to Ryan Fisk, though, right? So if we are using reflective equilibrium to generate our moral theory, right, to construct, to construct our moral theory, it's important that the intuitions that we appeal to, especially intuitions about particular cases, right, are yeah. f- are are framed in the in the proper context that would correspond to how we would feel about you know that same particular case in in real life, right? So you know yeah, if you're I Francis Cam yeah. and you're only using right. in your wide reflective equilibrium, I'm not saying she does or doesn't. I have no, I don't think I've ever read a word of Francis Cam. I'm just going, <laughs> um, well, like, I I sir have. Yeah. I haven't read your book, but Francis Cam, <laughs> on the other hand, but but if you're using only those intuitions and balancing those out with your intuitions about general principles, then I don't think that's uh, an effective way to go because your intuitions about particular cases won't really correspond to what your real intuitions about 
particular case, cases would be, your real judgments about particular cases would be in real-life situations. And I think that's yeah. an important fundamental point of this paper that would apply both to constructing normative theories as well as uh, psychological theories. I agree. And so so here's what we would want, that if you're going to construct a normative uh, ethical theory build by building basic intuitions about cases, if it were the case that Francis Cam feels very differently about uh, killing versus letting die when she's talking about her family versus when she's talking about her in-group versus when she's talking about, the you know, like wh- whatever uh, other social uh, situation she's in. Um, that would be problematic for her account. And that and, would be important data for would, any kind of uh, normative theory it, that it would, would be constructed using, at least in part, an appeal to hypothetical cases. You would actually want to make sure they were as close to something that you can, you know, that would reflect how you, which of these frameworks uh, right. you would actually use in that kind of situation. Right. And so I, I think that uh, that this is true. So the, the fear is and there's there's a sort of analogous concern in psychology where if you're building a theory on on empirical evidence. So you, you say, I think that people uh, are more likely to uh, buy things when they're priced at round numbers versus when they're priced at non round numbers. And you only use one example over and over, like one scenario over and over again, like the purchasing. It's a hypothetical scenario that was sort of. Yeah, or even a real judgment scenario. Like if you just use the one over and over again, and that's all the data that you get, and you never bother to actually say, like, you know, you only look at the cars being purchased. And and turns out that, like, there are all kinds of things, all kinds of scenarios or, or consumer choices that don't meet this. Um, and right, and that our you know our our the way we act in car dealerships is different from the way we exactly. act in you know fancy clothes stores. Right, or then the universality of your claim is just called into doubt. So so the burden is on you a little bit. I think that Francis Cam though would say suppose that she was were presented and again as you say this isn't about Francis Cam but we're just using no this, this is person. my <laughs> yeah. my imagined Francis <laughs> this imagined Francis Cam yeah. Um, uh, that that she says, well, look, as Peter Singer says, well, look, I do feel as if I have a, my intuition about caring for my mother at the expense of starving kids is 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 a pull for me, but I am going to reject it. Then at least you can say he's not being disingenuous, right? Yeah. It's it's required of him. So you could have a dis- so, and this is, I guess, what I'm saying is that. A but lot I'm of saying, these intuitions, but, 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 yeah, sorry, go ahead. could, yeah, they just could be rejected to build that normative theory in in a way that I don't think is is that problematic for the normative theory. Right? See here, I do, and that's because, and I think this about Peter Singer, even though I've never met him, I, I believe that he feels the pull of it. Mm-hmm. I don't think he feels the pull of it nearly as much as really almost anybody, (laughs) even in our culture. (laughs) But never mind a culture where 
caring for the elderly is one of the most basic and obvious, you know, elderly family members is one of the most basic and obvious, like, core moral obligations that you have. And they're horrified not by even people who, like, put their 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 parents in nursing homes and uh, yeah. and who don't immediately just live with them and t- and and devote a good part of their life to taking care of them that just seems in, like barely comprehensible never mind that you wouldn't even pay to have her illness treated because- yeah yeah and i obviously agree with you about sort of which theory to we like i endorse i just don't think that it's fair to say if peter singer knowing all of this like he knows exactly what people's intuitions are it's it's not that he's insensitive to the data and, and he's not in, unaware of the disagreement if what he's saying is like you know we're gonna when we do reflective equilibrium we're going to have to abandon certain intuitions and I think that the intuitions that we ought to abandon are this, these set of intuition, this set of intuitions versus this set of intuitions. I don't think that on the face of it, it's a, it's the, a moral theory that's just I- incorrect. I, I think that it's just, you know, what the principles that you choose to, or the intuitions that you choose over the other ones, uh, I don't, I just don't see that it's actually an empirical question. But I, I, I guess the my point is I agree to the extent that Peter Singer is welcome to conduct his life according to the theory that is constructed out of the intuitions that he chooses to reject, in large part because he has a different psychology than I do. I wouldn't choose to reject the same intuitions that he chooses to, and so therefore there's nothing – that he can do to make me think that he's right about this and I'm wrong. If it really comes down to he feels the pull of family obligations half as much as I feel them. Yeah, I guess, though, that I, I think that that's a little unfair to the persuasive power that, of Peter Singer's approach, which is, well, look, I'm not – like it would be it would be kind of impossible if all it bo- boiled down to – uh, were were how powerful these intuitions uh, uh, you know b- just based on your psychology like let's say you have more empathy or more disgust or something like that and that's okay but I think that the appeal of, of Peter Singer's approach is that you don't sacrifice consistency right so and so I think that this is w- what I guess I'm getting at which is that the uh, the nice thing about uh, utilitarianism according to Singer is that it it really does uh, do a nice job of taking care of a wide variety of cases and not being inconsistent in the way that some of our intuitions are and I think that is not empirical data but it's it's he may be wrong about it but it's not on the face of it a source of evidence that's just bullshit no okay it's but not wait, empirical wait, wait, wait. evidence it has to be more than just consistent because you can have a, a consistent deontological theory what? You could, you could, but I think that his his claim is often that they they are inconsistent. So, but but only but, because he reject, you know, he wants a very small number of principles, right? If you just have a bunch of different principles with different valences, that there's nothing inconsistent about that, right? I mean, no, but but let's just all I'm saying though is that this this is a non-empirical debate, like a source of a source of input into the appropriateness of a moral theory that's non-empirical, like whether or not or something. It does yeah, simplicity, something, simplicity lead to more accuracy when it comes to moral theories. Yeah, and and that that I think is a fundamentally 
it's it's a starting point and not a non-empirical one that that we value. And I don't think that it does it justice to say, well, let's let's see how many people value this kind. But of... here's the thing: I, I guess I I think one of the things also is that we're not like we seem to disagree more than we are. Like when I say empirical question, I mean it ultimately boils down to some sort of fact about human psychology, whether it's a fact that you can test and whether it's a very complicated fact. Uh, that's all I mean, but I think uh, maybe yeah. you mean it in a slightly more restrictive way. Well, I don't. Yeah, I don't want empirical to mean anything. Any so uh, the fact that everybody, you know, or most everybody agrees that one plus one equals two. You could call that an empirical. That is an empirical fact that people agree, but that's not the pull of one plus one equals two. That's why we believe what if, it. So let's say there was a whole other culture with very smart people that, you know, rejected modus tollens. Right. Right? Uh, yeah. I would find that, A, to be a very interesting psychological fact yeah. about them. I mean, we culture. have these examples. What? We yeah, do we have, have examples. We have those like kind, I don't yeah, know yeah. if we have that specific example, yeah, yeah, right. but we have those kinds of examples, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that starts to make me question the objectivity of logic. Is this just our logic that we've constructed in our... And maybe there's some sort of cultural explanation for why, you know, that seems so self-evident to us and not but, to them. But, but that, should be the, that should be one of the final, the final resting points once you've tried your best to take care of what... So I take it that the fact that like 80% of Americans believe in, in the devil or whatever does not lead you to to this sort right, of because i think epi- that they're basing that belief on either right. some sort of illegitimate epistemic process or right. bad empirical information right so so all i'm saying is that that would be what i think about modus tollens because i actually think even though the answer to whether modus tollens is is the right the right fallacy you know if that's really a fallacy or whatever uh, which is Tolan's the fallacy or is Ponin's the fallacy? I always get this. No, no, no. It's uh, uh, no. It's neither are fallacies. They both. They're both lo- there's, uh, valid denied. rules of inference. It's just that you can affirming, affirming the consequence. affirming the consequence. That's yeah, the fallacy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. God, even yeah. I know that. So right. So a ba- ba- basic. <laughs> you're, you're, well, you're a philosopher. A basic principle of logic, right? I think that uh, you would say, just as you would for for a supernatural belief, you'd say, well, what's co- like. Are they just like not as intelligent? You would work your way out, and what you would say, you. The, but if the you could come that, up with a good explanation for why they're right, and because because every time you think it's going to be one of those things, right? Like the devil one, right? yeah. I, but you're not saying that modus tollens is at the at the end of at the end of the day an empirical fact. Like, wouldn't you just say like maybe we have to restructure uh, what we believe about logic? And restructuring yeah, what you believe like about the, logic yeah, is not no, an empirical I would say task. maybe what it is. I always thought that logic was some sort of objective uh, universal truth that you could either get right or wrong, like, say, you know, the fallacy of affirming the consequent. But it turns out that there are, you know, a plurality of, of incommensurable logical systems that different cultures tend to adopt. I don't know, because of some gum, guns, germs, and steel explanation or something like that, and that you can't really say that one is more right and the other is more wrong. It's more that, you know, you're, that it's, once it's embedded within your culture, there's really no getting out of it. So I would become not an objectivist, but maybe a pluralist about logic at that point. Uh, yeah, and I guess I, I, I guess I never would 
Nothing for that, could for convince that you? reason. No, no, of course something convinced me. And in fact, logicians convince me, right? Like Girdle, like Girdle's theorem convinces me about, you know, the, like the incompleteness convinces me, to, it tosses me into quandaries about logic, but not the empirical fact that some people disagree with me no, about no, no, logic. No, no, it's not just that some people disagree with you. It's that there's no way of explaining the disagreement that would lead even you to think that one of them was right and one of them was wrong. And I and I guess that that so at that point though we're Diffusing doing experience. we're doing real logic, right? And so but that's like a real end point to the fact of disagreement, right? So an intelligent person who disagrees with you about logic, it would be the fi- the final thing I would have to conclude once we've gone through logic like in all of the steps and what, where, where the, where, you know, maybe they're assuming something different about the basic principles, like, you know, like non-Euclidean geometry for like violating some, ba- you know, or changing some real basic assumption. And then, then after all of that, because I believe that logic really is fundamentally, you know, some, something one way or the other. Yeah. That then after all of that, I, I might be puzzled, but I don't think we're there with moral stuff yet. Right. Like I think, but, but it, I mean now, right. I agree, but then it's just a burden of proof question. You know what we got to do is Doris and Placia's paper um, on moral disagreement. You know that paper? No, no. I I mean, it's just exactly about what we've been arguing about. Okay, good. Well, I I think we've exhausted. exhausted But but that is what it, you know, like I'm more likely to agree with you about logic. I just don't. I think the evidence is better, A, that there's not as much disagreement about logic, and when there is, there are good ways of explaining the disagreement that make me think that one is right and one is wrong, whereas I just don't think moral theories we're anywhere near that. I think Uh, we're both pulled, though, by by our commitments about these meta-ethical commitments about morality in a way that that colors why we're arguing what we're arguing. So if, you know, if I view morality more as like something like logic that has uh, non-empirical sources of of validation or or if it's more like something like aesthetics where – where it's pretty obvious that the reason we think some things are better aesthetically than others like could really vary across cultures and and it's really hard sometimes you couldn't ignore everybody's opinion about aesthetic judgments right um and so or you couldn't some, or i mean you could ignore them but you couldn't ignore them and maintain an objectivism about aesthetics right, right. yeah so but you know the burden i think is as you say the burden is if is to, if you're building a norm of ethical theory to say what exactly you count as evidence for the truth of a normative ethical theory. And so we have to clarify that for sure. And I yeah. think that one of the things that maybe psychologists do extra is they just assume that descriptive data will have normative implications. And I'm not, and, and I think that that actually, that's why we've been talking about it for an hour that actually requires some fleshing out. Right? It definitely requires fleshing out. Yeah. And then we've been doing, I don't know if a good yeah, job, but we've I know, been doing a long job. I feel like we've both that. been saying one thing over and over again. <laughs> I know. I'm scared Maybe to we'll go back to this episode. <laughs> All right. So to wrap this episode up, let me read this final paragraph of Ryan Fisk. And I think here is where he agrees with you more than he agrees with me about the implications of his own theory, but that you're both wrong. Of their own theory. Uh, of their own theory, right? <laughs> God damn it. Rye and Fisk. Rye is first author. This raises serious questions about the ways in which natural foundations of morality may be used as rationales for judging cultural f- practices that we intuitively believe are immoral. 
If some prescriptively, quote, evil practices in the world are facilitated by the same moral motives that lead to prescriptively good outcomes, we cannot blind ourselves to this truth. This is not to say that we must accept horrific acts because they have a natural and objective basis in human moral psychology. We may and we should assess which moral motives best promote human health, well-being, and peace. We, we, we may and we should assess which moral motives best promote human health, well-being, and peace. But we must understand the moral psychological basis of acts we aim to deter if we are to foster the tolerance that is necessary to relate to each other and to develop the wisdom to combat practices we cannot condone. Efforts to change practices we find abhorrent or to foster practices we deem good will require us to understand which social relational model are most conducive to human welfare under specific sociological uh, social ecological conditions. On the basis of this understanding, we must then work to constitute the social relations that generate the moral motives we seek to foster. We hope this review is is a first step in that direction. So it's like all of a sudden he's saying, oh yeah, I mean, consequentialism is obviously true, and so we just have to use this theory to bring about the best consequentialist outcome, which I just think is a total... It's a, it's a total just out-of-the-blue form of of dogmatism. I mean, he even says, right, I, I don't want this to be used as a rationale for judging cultural practices that we intuitively believe are, are immoral. Where do those intuitions come from that tell us that those practices are immoral? I mean, all of a sudden we're just saying that our intuitions are correct, and so we have to just bring the rest of the world no. to, you know, act in ways that we want them to so that... <laughs> well, uh, to be most fair, I, I, I think that this is fundamentally, a, in their, their attempt at a psychological theory, not a normative one. So, so that said, the inclusion of this paragraph, I think, is motivated by the fear that people would conclude that then we have to accept honor honor killings. And so I think what they're trying to say is that well look this does not lead to just a, a sort of relativism that would require us to accept everything that people do even if it's motivated by some sort of moral moral right. motive. And so so what do they do? And they do what psychologists and other social scientists do, which is they fall back on some broad consequentialist approach, which I think you're you're right to point out is unfair. Well, they could have just as easily said we don't mean to say that honor killings are right, so we should keep some deontological principles in mind when we're evaluating this. Or it we could should just keep as well. just, you know, you, you could point out that, you know, honor killings are likely based on some religious belief or religious view. Right, but that would require altering their theory. Their theory isn't so, a theory So about- take it on something more controversial than honor killings, like female <laughs> circumcision, right? It's not going to yeah. be obvious at all that his theory is irrelevant to judging whether that's a practice we could condone in another culture, not in ours, but in another culture that views that's, you know, using a different moral motive or a moral framework, you know, when judging whether that practice is okay. And, and this is like the, I, I, I'm not saying anything new here. This is like what Richard uh, Schwader says. Um, in his writings on female circumcision, that that actually matters. And that's why we should back off 
when it comes to certain practices like that. It it matters. I, I think that the, what they're saying is that yeah, it matters. I think that it what matters all, for all they're saying just it, like the practical benefit of bringing them to our point of view. I, I know, like, but here's where here's where I think that that you know to do some exegesis, right? Which is you know you're right that on the face of it they just seem to like blindly accept consequentialism in the last paragraph. But I think it's important to say they're not they're not building a normative theory, but they've they've flirted with the implications that this might have for normative theory, and now they're faced with this. Are we really claiming that the the only thing that matters for whether or not we should judge something as right or wrong is this the brute empirical facts about psycholo- psychology? And I think that they disagree with you. No, no, I, I, they, because, they, they no, essentially no. say they, no. There, we all there agree are other on things, but there are other things that. Okay, well, so so there are other things that matter. What are those other things? And then it's like you know we're not philosophers, like, but you would think that happiness and health and all those. But they're not the only matter. thing that. Matters. That's that's it. I wouldn't. No, no, they're not the only thing that matters. I mean, they're saying like, look, we need to really. All of the pages have been about taking into account the psychological facts, the motivations, and at the end, all they're saying is like, well, let's let let let's just be clear. We're not saying that those are the only things that matter. That sometimes principles might matter, or and so they're tossing in the sort of you know are based that they're working on. I mean, this is something that's just not emphasized enough in the paper at all. But like, if a certain practice, even if they're using the communal motive, is just based on an empirically false fact. You know, the classic example of people who think that the only way to, to satisfy the hippopotamus god in the river is to throw the child in, right? And so, you know, uh, or else yeah. he'll eat up and destroy the whole village and all the children. Well, that I mean, that that's true that that might be an empirical fact that would, would like if it if it turns out that if a modest God does not exist, it would. But again, there are other reasons why even if you thought that there were a hippopotamus God that required this and who actually existed, you might you might say that that's not a good thing. And that wouldn't be an empirical reason to abandon it. Like, all, I think that all they're saying is like there are other there are other reasons that matter that are non-empirical. They say very specifically uh, as a, that you can't use it as any kind of rationale or as rationales <laughs> for judging cultural practices that we intuitively believe are, immor- are moral. They don't say Why any are kind. Why are our intuitions if you're all of be, a just the best ones? No, if you're going to be nitpicky, you have to quote them right. They're not it saying it can't as be used as any kind I of rationale. That to mean. For judging cultural practices that we intuitively be are believe are immoral. All, of, all that they're saying is – Look, this does not lead to a blind acceptance that honor killings and such are true. Yeah, maybe. Like, what we've presented in our theory about moral motives does not lead to that. And here are some possibilities. You might actually care about well-being overall. And I think that there – this is – I mean, you're right to point out that ph- psychologists are looser in their, in their philosophy and that this – you know, the, that kind of throwaway sentence or throwaway paragraph about what are some other things that might matter is the heart of what matters to you guys, but it's not – you know, it's not. It's it's just as irresponsible for philosophers to say. You know, psychologists oh, have shown, fine, and then they. This now, you might be right. I'm looking at it. Uh, I, yeah, fair, fair enough. It just seems like all of a sudden they're very comfortable with their consequentialism, and I agree that rhetorically, this is just <laughs> uh, probably to say I don't want to come across as a blind relativist. Right. Yes, I think that's that's true, but that doesn't mean that they're not responsible for what they say after that. All right, we got to wrap up. So yeah. join us next time on Very Bad Wizards, and Dave is going to have a sign off. It's going to be his like trademark <laughs> sign off. <laughs> Toodle, be like his Well, hopefully not that one. Peace out, motherfuckers. Hell yeah. Okay. 
more information about this episode, including show notes and links, and to listen to other episodes, please visit us at www.verybadwizards.com. Just a very bad wizard.